Welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today is a special treat as I get to interview one of my student affairs mentors and heroes, Dr. Larry Roper. We'll learn about his career, his wisdom, and his insights into the student affairs and social justice. I'm so excited you agreed to do this, Dr. Roper. Thank you, and please, I, I really prefer to go by Larry. Thank you, Larry, I appreciate <laughs> that. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release each episode every Wednesday. Um, find us at studentaffairsnow.com or on Twitter. And this episode is sponsored by Stylus Publishing. Stylus is proud to be a sponsor for the Student Affairs Now podcast. Browse their student affairs diversity and professional de development titles at styluspub.com. You can use the promo mode SANOW for 30% off all books plus free shipping. You can also find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at styluspub. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach, and you can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm hosting this conversation today from Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is the ancestral home of the Dakota and Ojibwe peoples. So let's get to this conversation, Larry. Uh, I'm so glad you decided to join us. You are a student affairs legend. As I was putting together the questions and the prompts, I, I reached out to some folks who I know look up to you and know you, um, and they had some great suggestions. Uh, the first was uh, Mike Sagawa, who I think is someone yeah. who you know pretty well. Absolutely. He, he said you've been him. doing this for a long time and wanted to know what you were thinking about looking back. You were the student affairs leader at Oregon State for over 20 years. Um, mm. How have you seen student affairs work evolve over that time? And how, how did you evolve over that time? Yeah, you know, um, one of the things I um, would often talk to my colleagues about was the challenge I have of trying to lead in the world um, that was so different from the world into which I was born and the world in which I was born. Um, and at the same time, working with people whose life situations um, I had not been exposed in my own formative, formative years. And uh, just the learning requirement that that presented for me. And in the process, I feel like I had some of the most amazing and generous teachers and mentors, and predominantly they came from undergraduate students. Um, students who would walk into my life and ask and make a request of me that drew upon something that hit me emotionally, but didn't connect to a knowledge base that I had. And so I would ask them to tell me, so tell me more about this so that I can support you in the best way possible. Um, one example was in my, my first, second year at Oregon State, um, a female presenting student um, came to my office and said, um, I need to ask you a favor. And um, I said, sure, what? She said, um, I need you to be a champion for me. I said, well, that's my, my role, the job is to be a champion. She said, um, but I would need to go through um, a sex reassignment process. And um, I am going to go through a process of becoming shame. Um, and, and I said, so what does that mean? And so she started to 
again, she at the time, began to tell me about what the surgery, the medications, the accommodations, everything that's needed. And honestly, inside, I'm thinking, you know, too much information. What I discovered in that conversation was that in order for me to help that student, I needed to completely understand their story and to be able to hear that story and then to translate that into the leadership imperative that was there, was being presented for me. Uh, tremendous learning. Um, the work that, in being able to present to my colleagues, here's what we need to do. Here's what's being asked of us. Here's the world for which we need to prepare. Um, was for me one of those sort of a, you know, sort of an example of all the other areas where I either had no information, misinformation, or outdated information. Mm-hmm. And so it was this constant um, responsibility and journey of, of learning, um, but not learning in isolation, right? So you learn in relationship with others so that as you want to transform organizations and systems, You've got teams of people who are equipped to do that, not just me. And so it wasn't just a solo, a solo journey. Um, so I've seen the, the profession change dramatically. Um, the knowledge basis on which we draw, you know, I mean, it was, you know, student development theory when I came in. Now we're talking about critical race theory. We're talking about feminist pedagogy. We're talking about the sources that we draw upon to inform our work. Um, and to, you know, the idea about decolonizing knowledge, right? Uh, decolonizing our institutions and our structures and our policies, those are things that you know, 25 years ago, if you had said those things, people would be looking at you like, like you were problematic. Mm-hmm. I mean, there certainly are people who look at you like you're problematic <laughs> these days. But in those days, it would have been, you know, this is, we were student development professionals. Well, while we engage in student development, we know now that a lot of the work that we do is case management, (laughs) right? That we're dealing with students' housing insecurity and food insecurity. We're dealing with medical issues, vulnerabilities. Um, So it's just a completely different world, as well as the people who comprise the student affairs profession. I mean, it's it's just, there's nothing in what I see today that quite frankly resembles um, the profession that I entered more than 40 years ago. Well, I love that you're talking about um, what has been critical for you to be able to lead and be able to serve students has been this learning process and unlearning. Mm -hmm. Um, And I love that your greatest teachers have been undergraduate students, not always Mm -hmm. faculty or mentors or people you looked up to, but students who came to you, needed your help or came to you frustrated with you or the administration and all that you learn from them. Um, someone who you mentored along the way, Chris Winter, uh, yes. <laughs> mentioned to me, Chris mentioned to me that you had an interesting college transition and that that really shaped your student affairs work. Would you be willing to tell us about this? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so first thing you need to know is that when I went to college, I had never spent a night away from home before. So I went to, um, I grew up in Akron, Ohio and went to um, a small college in Northwest Ohio, Heidelberg University, 
And um, so when I went, I'd never visited even before I went there. I went there sight unseen. And Great. so my, um, my brother um, and two of my friends um, drove me to college and I had a paper bag um, with my clothes in it, um, a typewriter that um, had a radio built into it, uh, a little bit of a turntable and three record albums. <laughs> so that was it. So we went there, we drove through the country, you know, we'd never been out of, you know, these city kids never been out of the city before, you know, harassing cows, you know, get out of the car and harass cows. And um, so we get there, we hang out, we throw the football around a little bit, and then they leave. Um, and I went early, a week early, because I was um, going to play football. And... Um, literally, I was the only person on my residence hall floor. And I lasted three days. <laughs> After three days, I can't do it. So I took the few things that I had, walked out to the, the road, and hitchhiked um, back to Akron. And um, when I arrived at home, I, my mother, single parent, um, greeted me at the door. Um, she wouldn't open the door. <laughs> mm -hmm. She just stood on the other side and said, what are you doing here? And I said, I quit. And she said, quit what? I said, quit college. She says, how are you going to quit? You haven't even started yet. And I said, I, I can't do it. And so she said, get your butt in here and sit down. Which was never a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> And so um, she started interrogating me uh, and said, so what's, what's your problem? And I said, I don't like it there. And I started complaining that, you know, I don't like the food and the mattresses. It's really hot there and the mattresses are made of plastic and I sleep and I sweat all night. And, you know, so all this really lame, lame stuff. And she could just see right through it. And um, she said, you know, you're sitting here complaining. And for everybody back here, you're the luckiest person they know. You know where your next meal is coming from. You got a roof over your head. You are going to get education. Um, so what's the problem? And finally, I just said, I'm scared. And she said, so what do you got to be scared of? And I said, well, when I lay down at night and try to go to sleep, I can hear crickets. And I can hear the wind blow. And I said, it's just scary. And, you know, then she gets really compassionate. She said, but, you know, maybe that's just the sound of nature. And I said, but that's not what's natural to me. I'm used to hearing horns honking and glass breaking and loud music and sirens and all of that quiet is scary. Mm -hmm. And so then she gets to her bottom line. <laughs> she said, well, you're going to go somewhere. <laughs> so you can go to army, you can go to jail, you can go anywhere, but you're not going to stay in my house and eat my food. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I said, okay, I'll go back. And so she said, um, so she gave me a little pep talk and everything. And then she called my cousin Harold. She said, cousin Harold will drive you back. I'm going to give him some gas money and he'll drive you back. And so my cousin Harold, who was another city kid who hadn't you know, left Akron before, he was several years older than me though. 
and we're driving through all these really small rural towns in Ohio and stuff. And he's like looking at me and shaking his head. He said, you know, I don't know, bro. All these cotton, these cottonwood trees out here, they'd they be hanging brothers out here. <laughs> and I said, Carol, I'm looking for courage, man. <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So we get there and he drops me off. And the last thing he says before he leaves me, he says, just said, stay black, brother. <laughs> and um, so I went back and I struggled. I struggled really hard. And at the midterm, um, some of our colleges, they'll give you your grades. So at halfway through the semester, they send us a report card and say, basically, if the term ended today, here's what you would have. Um, I had 0.75 GPA. Mm-hmm. And um, I graduated at the top of my high school class. So I wasn't, nobody ever had to talk to me about my grades. Mm-hmm. So my dean of students called me in, a guy by the name of Robert Olson. Mm-hmm. And um, he was just very thoughtful and he says, you know, you're struggling and he says, this isn't consistent with what your grades are in high school. You know, what can I do? To, what can I do to help? And I just said, I'm fine. I'll be fine. Thank you. Thanks for your help. And basically I was, I was humiliated because mm-hmm. it was just like so out of character for having someone talk to me about something like that. Um, and so I had sold my record player to pay my phone bill. <laughs> so I didn't have, but I had the three albums and I, they had record uh, consoles at our, in our library, study carols, where you could go and put on a, a turntable. Mm-hmm. And I would just went there every night um, after football practice until the library closed. And by the end of the term, I had gotten like a two eight. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up doing very well the rest of the time there. Um, but that conversation with him struck me. You know, and um, during my freshman year, he came, he approached me and said, you know, would you think about, you ought to think about applying to be an RA. And that did it. Yeah. <laughs> that got me on the path. And he has still turned out to be the most inspirational person in my career. Because my career was about, I wanted to be Bob Olson. Yeah. You know, so I, many I years be, later, that back, comes back to you. I, I wanted to be that in somebody's life. Right. Someone who believed in you, maybe when you yeah. didn't believe in yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, you, you've believed in some people. I've mentioned some of those names. One, one of the people who I reached out to is uh, Manta Akapati, yeah. who uh, I believe was your dean of students at Oregon yes. State for, for yes. a number of years. Manta said that you shaped and transformed my entire demeanor and energy as an educator. That's a quote from Mamta. Wow. And uh, she said that um, one of the things she will never forget and continues to use every beginning of the year, you started every student affairs staff meeting at the beginning of the year with the quote, it is our job to believe in other people's children. Yeah. And she was so profoundly shaped by that. She continues to use that to this day. So I'm hearing some of this, um, Bob Olson, believing mm-hmm. in you, your mother even believing in mm-hmm. you, which is scary. Um, I wonder if you could tell us about believing in other, in other people's children and pairing this with um, someone who I would hear about Larry Roper 15 years ago over and over and over with Susan Longerbeam when we were both at the University yeah. of Maryland. Yeah. Um, how do we believe in other people's children? And Susan's question, Susan Longerbeam's question was, how do we create communities of care in these times? As you mentioned, a lot of what we're doing is feel like case yeah. management. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think um, student, student affairs organizations need to have 
foundational values. Um, they need to have a set of declarations around which they do their work. And one of the things that I feel really good about was, and I've said before, is just the incredible people with whom I had an opportunity to work while at Oregon State University. Um, you know, this idea that people don't join organizations, they join people. And so when we were when we would hire people, we would try to figure out how do we introduce them to the community of practice that we are engaged in, so that that's what they fall in love with, that, that community of practice, and they can see how that can influence and support them in their journeys. Because I didn't try to bring anybody into the organization or ask us to bring anybody into the organization with the idea that that was sort of their endpoint. Mm-hmm that this is just a part of their journey and that we need to be as meaningful as meaningful contributors to that, their growth during that time as possible. So we um, committed to time as a community. Um, so our staff meetings, we only met every, for our, we call it student affairs leadership team. And there were probably about 30 of us who met. Um, and we would meet from, 1030 to 3.30 with the idea that our role was to become a, a work team, not a staff. Mm-hmm. So we didn't do staff meetings. Mm-hmm. We did team meetings. Mm-hmm. And our focus was how do we build ourselves into a team of practice um, and a community. So we during those times, we'd have extensive learning, so we would commit to what our learning agenda was going to be for a particular year. We invested in it. We invested in the quality of our interactions and our conversations, so we had conversation monitors. So at the beginning of each of our meetings, we would identify a couple of people to be observers. Halfway through, we would stop and have them report out, so how are we doing? And they would point out if we were doing things that weren't community-like. So we were constantly sort of paying attention to how we were with each other as much as what we were producing on behalf of our leadership um, to honor the needs of our the needs of our community. So whenever we had challenging issues, I always told them if I was in my office sitting alone trying to figure out how to solve a problem, we were on the wrong path. Mm-hmm. If I'm sitting with a group of others, figuring out how we resolve a problem, then we're on the right path. So I did as little solitary work as possible that I want my work to be community facing mm-hmm. so that if a tough question was raised, it was raised publicly and it was answered publicly. Mm-hmm. That we weren't doing secret deals. <laughs> mm-hmm. So people couldn't come and work me on the side for resources and, and things like that. Um, because the organization the resources were the organization's resources, not my resources. Mm-hmm. It wasn't my budget. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I would tell people in community is that pronouns matter. Mm-hmm. We and our is very more important than me and mine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we would spend lots of time sort of trying to shape the shape the collective and with the idea that it's not about what makes our job easier but what makes the life of the student better. Mm-hmm. And so it was like not just a matter of saying you care, but it's demonstrating caring. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. um, and the other way I think that you um, show that you believe in other people's children is the time that you give to them. Are you present in the life of the students on your campus? So I would, um, and one of the reasons Chris knew my personal stories, we would do, I would, I would do fireside chats in the fall and I would give every student who attended, I would give them my direct line to call if they ever had an issue. And I would tell them that my job is to believe in you even in those moments when you don't believe in yourself. And so anytime you're feeling blue and you need a pep talk, I, I get an allowance so I can take you to lunch. I can buy you coffee. <laughs> and um, so know that you've always got somebody. And it was amazing the number of students who would call. And they would say, I remember, I wrote your number down. And I've got a really tough issue. And I, I don't know if I had talked to you. Can I, would it be okay if we got together to talk? So I think you do it a conversation at a time. Right. Well, and I think just hearing that makes me overwhelmed with all, all the pulls on your time, right? All these students calling you. Mm -hmm. But then I'm pairing that with, I didn't make a lot of decisions on my own. It was really a community. And so I think you're, you're talking about doing the job of leading student affairs work in a very different way than, than I'm familiar with it. And I think that we often feel like we're supposed to, or we should, um, Someone, you know, one of the things that challenges our communities is the the current racial climate, the incidents of racism yeah. that are happening. Yeah. Um, I live here in Minneapolis where George Floyd was murdered by police. And mm -hmm. we have all these things happening. Um, someone who was really, someone else who was really shaped by you was uh, Jake Diaz. And yeah. uh, Jake's, Jake, Jake's question for you was, with the current racial climate in mind, what would you offer today's professionals as wisdom when decisions made by their institutions they serve conflicts with how they think or feel personally. I think yeah. so many of us are facing that. Yeah, that is a really, really tough thing. And I, I just think back to um, an experience that I had when I worked at St. John Fisher College in Rochester, New York, um, where I was the vice president for student affairs and dean of students. And the, um, the president there was one of the most justice-focused people I think I've ever met in my life, mm -hmm. uh, a guy by the name of Bill Pickett. And um, early on, because um, I'm not Catholic, and I was supervising priests, and we were trying to make decisions around during the time when AIDS was really just dominating our society, and I was advocating to you know, make condoms available to students, and um, you know everything had to go through the priests. And it was like, you know, they just couldn't, they couldn't do it. They couldn't see them. So there. And so I just share with him just how much it went against my personal values. And in probably the most loving and thoughtful way anybody could have ever said it, he basically said, we didn't hire you for your personal opinion. We hired you when we were searching, we were looking for someone who could help us to advance the mission of helping us be the best version of who we want to be. And we believe that that's the kind of leadership that you can show this community. And that for me, just really hit a switch for me. That while I had these beliefs, after I left St. John Fisher College, they were still gonna be a Catholic college. 
and for me to turn them, try to turn them into something other than a Catholic college mm-hmm. was an act of sort of more sort of self commitment than institutional commitment. Right? I'm right. committed to me. I'm committed right. to my, my core, and not committed yeah. to that. And so part of it is that the, the first thing I would say is the first challenge is to find a community that hopefully, as you lead on behalf of their mission, you're also leading on behalf of the values that you would want to live out. But in those moments when it doesn't, to realize that different people are charged with looking at the world from a different vantage point than you. And that what you want to be able to say is that from wherever sphere of influence I have, I lead with as much integrity as I can. And how the president leads or the provost leads is a matter of their integrity, not mine. And that I can support and advance something on behalf of doing honor to my role in terms of either, because I'm either on the team or I'm off the team. There is no vacillating. That if I'm on a team, I will make the best of what's handed to me as a leader. Um, and when those instances where I have a chance to, to lead, then I will do that. Mm-hmm. Because you would know that even as, if you're Jacob or somebody, you make a decision, there are those who report to you who may say, I don't agree with that decision. Mm-hmm. But again, that's because of where they're sitting in the world and where they're, where they're being asked to look at the world in the ways that you're being asked to look at the world. So mm-hmm. I just think that sort of that constant reconciling of do what you can do from wherever you sit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then support others where they sit with your with the best input that you can get. Right. Well, you're reminding me of one wisdom that I often received and give is that we're all middle managers, right? As the yep. vice provost, mm-hmm. you still had a boss. You get to, you don't yep. get to do whatever you want. Yep. Uh, a hall director might think the director of Res Life gets to do whatever they want, but they are a middle manager. They have, um, and so how do we how do we navigate the complexities of that, knowing that other everybody has pressures on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also this shift away from from me to we, from my ego and what I believe, my personal yep. passions to what is, how do I be of service to the people, the community, the organization? Yeah. How do I be, how do I recognize what this group is trying to do rather than advance my own agenda? How do I be of service? Absolutely. Um, well, as we talk about the, the current racial climate, one of the things that I have really uh, continued to learn from you over and over is thinking and rethinking how we go about social justice work. Um, I love your talk concluding NASPA a few years ago about, the, about hope uh, and how critical that is. And many years ago, I think it was in 2009, you did the closing keynote for the Residential Curriculum Institute at McAllister yeah. College, which I was co-chairing yeah. and happy to have you there. And I remember sitting there next to Vernon Wall, who was in the ACPA office at the time. And you said something in that talk. Um, you said, uh, we need fewer activists and more strategists. Yeah. And Vernon grabbed my arm sitting next to him and we both gasped and we both wrote that quote down. Um, and I just want to use that as a bit of a prompt to see if you could talk a little bit about your thoughts about how we go about social justice work and bringing about the kind of equity and community um, that we aspire to, but often fall so far short of. Yeah, you know, the, um, it, 
it's just one of those things where it's, sometimes I think we have to stop and make certain admissions to ourselves. Um, so for me, as I tried to do social justice work, I had to sort of make some admissions myself is that um, I'm approaching that work from being a flawed person. Right? There is so much of my own consciousness that needs work. Um, and I will encounter others with their own flaws that show in different ways. And that we have to think that if we want to be a just world, it's not just about carrying forward with us those who are with us, who we think are with us right now. (laughs) But it's building a tent that has spaces for people who can grow into being justice-minded and justice-oriented in their work. And some of those will be people who show up in ways that they're reflecting the degrees or the ways in which their, their spirits are damaged. They've been miseducated. Um, their, their souls have been poisoned. And it's going to be the nourishment, the care, the thoughtfulness of others that's going to bring them into a justice community or more justice-like behaviors, Mm -hmm. justice-oriented behaviors. So it requires a huge amount of humility, but also the capacity for forgiveness that... um, I can think about some of the most difficult situations that when I walked were situations of trying to resolve heinous racial incidents that happened on our campus, um, largely involving African-American students being targeted. And the first thing I had to put aside was my feeling of that could have easily been me or could have easily been my son or could have easily been, right? Um, so I have to take that out of it and say, so while I meet with the African-American student and ask them how they're doing and what I can do to be helpful and to explain to them all the processes and the supports and all the things we can do for them, I then have to go to the perpetrators and ask them, how are you doing? And what can we do to help you learn, grow, restore, and contribute to the restoration of our community? So the, the work of, of, of justice is much like all the other work that we do in our organization, relationship building. Right? It's all about creating space for people's stories and figuring out where you can enter their story to add value to them getting better, mm-hmm. to them growing and to them learning. And I think that's one of our biggest challenges that we hear people and we think about sides that they're, they're on the other side. Mm-hmm. And what do we do to quiet them down? Well, I think the reality is, what do we do to get them to talk more mm-hmm. so we can better understand what the educational responsibility, the educational challenge, the educational opportunity here that's being presented for us? Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's really profound and so hard to do, particularly when we're hurting or when we see yeah. other people hurting. 
is to create space for compassion for the people who are doing the hurting. Absolutely. It's so hard to do, but it, if we don't, then it's not really the, then we're not in the business of transformation and growth and equity. We're in the condemnation business. Well, it's like doctors only want to work with people who are already healed. Yeah. Right. It's like if you're a doctor and you're afraid of illness right. <laughs> or you're in a profession, well, if you're an educator and you're afraid of ignorance or you're repulsed by ignorance, then what business are we in? And if you're a social justice educator and you only want to talk with the students who get it or who are woke, who have critical consciousness around the issue of the you, then, then you're reminding me uh, recently with everything going on in the world, listen to uh, Nelson Mandela. Yeah. And he talked about coming out of prison for 27 years and creating a reconciliation process. And mm-hmm. the person said, why did you do that? Why not just create a black government? And to paraphrase, he said, we didn't do a reconciliation process because they deserved it. We went with reconciliation because we deserved it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the part that you're talking about. You, forgiveness is not for them. Forgiveness is for the growth and the learning to yeah. create more justice and more equity down the road. Yes, absolutely. Wonderful. My, head, my neck is sore from nodding in agreement with everything that you're saying. <laughs> so I love this. Um, someone else who uh, has learned an incredible amount from you is Jamie Washington. And oh, the Reverend Doctor yeah. uh, Jamie Washington said <laughs> that you had taught him about the importance of managing others' reputation. And yeah. he said, all you have to do is mention that to him and, and he'll tell you a story. So yeah. what is managing others' reputation? I'm fascinated. Well, you know, one of the things that um, we know is that... Um, The things that we say about others to others influences the kind of regard that people are extended. And that sometimes we have, if we have a relationship that's not going well with somebody, then we're pretty much free. We free ourselves to share that with others about how somebody has disappointed us or how they said something that we thought was insulting or reflected their ignorance or and so we, we we leave encounters with stories to tell about other people and in the process of doing that we mismanage their reputation and so one of the things I would always suggest to people is that you manage other people's reputation as you would your own because for most people your reputation is the most prized commodity that you have because that's like one of the stories that people tell about you Your reputation is your legacy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you, are you, what permission are we giving ourselves when we say, I want to now manage this person's legacy in a negative direction, Mm -hmm. right? By somehow creating my own narrative about who they are and doing that. So I would always suggest that one of the things that happens when we mismanage somebody else's reputation, we also mismanage our own because then people know that we are capable of, as my grandmother would say, spitting poison on other people, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? And they know that if they want to talk bad about somebody, they know where they often have a willing receptacle Mm -hmm. for that, right? So when people are coming to you with gossip or with rumors or with negative things about somebody else, they've now made a determination about what's okay with you Mm -hmm. and what reputation you are fine having about how you will talk about 
talk about others. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I previously had an opportunity to have a conversation with Susan Comavis, very much like this, and you yeah. were very kind and offering a little nudge and suggestion. And one of the things you said is, you know, I, I really understood her when I met Ralph and Jeff, her son. Mm -hmm. and be sure to ask her about Ralph and Jeff. And she was just thrilled that you had shared that and shared a story as I believe the two of you were about to give co-keynotes at the end of a NASPA many years ago. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and you, um, you speaking about your own son. Yeah. Um, and so she said, I should ask you about your role. This was even before I mentioned your question mm -hmm. about your role as a father uh, to your son, uh, not just personally, but in professional settings. You've talked about your son often publicly and yeah. professionally. How has being a father shaped you as a leader? Yeah, you know, one of the things that um, it did, first of all, was that because when I was starting my job at, um, at Oregon State, um, my son was born during my first year there. So, you know, I'm the only person on the cabinet with an infant child. Um, you know, I'm still sort of youngish at that point. Um, and having different obligations. But what it did, it made me really sensitive to the people who had parenting and other care-focused roles mm -hmm. at home and realizing that the kinds of things that I did, like when you send emails and you know, when you call meetings and all those things influence what people, the expectations you have for what when people are at work and what they do. And so we began to reshape our own organization's policies and guidelines, even with ignoring some of the union stuff around us to be able to say, we're going to free the units up to go with whatever kind of flexible scheduling is necessary to accommodate the workforce mm -hmm. in their units. So we began to have people back in the, you know, back in the nineties to do these sort of variable, variable days where some people who, you know, it's like it used to be that everybody comes in at eight o'clock, you know, offices open at eight and, you know, they go to five or whatever. But then we also began to realize that students <laughs> weren't showing up at eight o'clock. Right. They, they were sometimes saying, well, how come you don't have a, some kind of evening hours available and stuff? So we started to have some, some of our units would begin to say, yeah, we can do some evening hours. So we began to find that as we began to accommodate the lifestyles, needs of, of the members of our, our work community, we also began to really be able to be more responsive to the needs of the student community. So, so that was the, the other um, piece of it. Um, the thing that probably, and I, this is a story that I told, I think I told when, um, when Susan um, suggested I tell a story um, that actually had a huge influence on me was my son when he was about seven years old or so. We were... Um, sitting at the breakfast table, because we had a rule that, you know, we would always have breakfast together, um, that, you know, my wife or her son, uh, or I would always be with them for every meal. Um, and then we would always have family dinners together. But um, we were sitting and he said, so dad, I want to tell you about the ingredients in the Krabby Patty, um, but I'm not good like SpongeBob. So, um, so if I hesitate, don't steal my paws. And I said, well, what do you mean by steal your paws? He says, well, sometimes at the Montessori, so he went to Montessori school, he said, I'll be telling a story and I'll hesitate and somebody will steal my paws and then I'm going to get to finish my story. Mm -hmm. 
And the bad part is all of the good stuff comes after the pause. And, 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 what, and what it reminded me of and what it really helped me to focus on are the times in meetings when somebody will be talking and as soon as they hesitate, they give up the floor. Not because they want to give up the floor, but because the rest of the group is impatient to see what's coming on the other side of them pausing, thinking, and reflecting. Or you have a student who comes in your office and they're telling you something. And then they'll go quiet and they'll sit for a minute. And it's like it's in that moment that they're making a really important decision. Do I trust this person enough to tell them what's on the other side of my pause or this heave? <laughs> you know, or, or just this moment of reflection. Um, and so it really made me focus on conversation dynamics. Um, being fully present for another person's story um, and just the, the discipline that it requires to let a person complete their thought. Yeah, and, and silence is such a great tool for listeners mm -hmm. right? and to, to let that space fill in. Um, well, we're, we're just about out of time, but I, I want to return to Mike Sagawa for a last looking back question. He said he had just gotten you to do a last lecture for, I believe, a NASPA regional or something like that. And he yeah. said uh, that you would have recently have done that and then you might want to look back. So we'd love to get any advice you have for new professionals or what advice would you have for yourself as a new professional? Yeah. The first one that I would give myself is to uh, learn to hear and speak in multiple voices. I spent so much of my early career, again, thinking I was, because I thought I was, they had been telling us that we were student advocates, right? Mm -hmm. Listening for the student voice mm -hmm. and trying to speak in the student voice. Um, when I moved into the dean, my first dean's role, real early on in my career, I was getting calls from parents. I was having to do presentations to trustees. <laughs> I was having to go to our vice president with the budget to make requests. And I didn't have the language. I didn't have the voice because I had spent so little time listening to the needs and the perspectives and the views and the values. And oftentimes I was in the position of judging them mm -hmm. that they don't get it because but rather than saying, let me listen to what the president's saying, because his, the president isn't just talking to me, or isn't just talking to students. This president is talking to a lot of other people who will come up afterwards and say, and what about, and why did. And so I think this ability to be multilingual is a really important tool to have, to be able to speak effectively in a voice with a person, because if you want to make a case, you got to speak in a language that they're going to understand. Right. Yeah. Um, the other thing, the final thing that I would say is really learn to love what you get to do. But don't love your job. Oh, that's too good. Say that again. Love what you get to do, but don't love your job. Because mm -hmm. you can do what you do at multiple places. It's not always under your control whether you get to keep that job. And um, 
it's one of the things I actually share with my friend, my my friend um, Chris Winter. You know, I was just I remember we were at lunch once, and I just told her I said, you know, don't love your job, you know, save your love for something that can love you back, mm-hmm. right? But love your colleagues, love what you get to do, mm-hmm. but don't don't fall in love with your job because sometimes that keeps you frozen at a place longer than you need to be there. So I'm so curious because you were at Oregon State for a really long time, Mm -hmm. but what did, even though you didn't shift and you didn't move, what did this perspective allow you? I see how it maybe allows others to move and go on Mm -hmm. to another opportunity, but what did it allow you even as someone who didn't decide that's what you wanted to do? Because I made my job every day to fall deeper in love with my colleagues. But not the job. But not the job. So if there's this, I told people any time that I could walk away from the job. So I made a decision that I was ready to move on and do something else. But I still love my colleagues. Mm-hmm. I love what I got to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and oftentimes I got to do more. And so I kept getting you know to do different roles along the way. Mm-hmm. There, but um, so yeah, so it really was about um, the relationships. And so even after you leave the job, you still have access to those relationships, not maybe on a day-to-day basis, but if those relationships are real, you have access to them. Well, again, that's a reminder to let go of the ego and the yeah. title, but to be focused on being service, to be focused on the colleagues and the process and the students in this, which is something that you've come back to, not just because it's nice to do, but because mm-hmm. it makes you more effective. Yep, right? yep. It makes make you more effective leader, makes you more effective with students, it makes you more effective at creating social change. Um, these are such powerful lessons. Um, Mary, I'm so grateful that you gave us this gift of your time and generosity and wisdom with, with me and those folks listening to Student Affairs Now. Uh, I also want to thank my co-conspirators in this. There were many. Uh, Chris Winter, Mom Takapati, Mike Sagawa, Susan Longerbean, Jacob Diaz, Vernon Wall, Jamie Washington, and Susan Komovas, who all wanted to chime in with what they wish they would have gotten to ask. Well, thank you. I, I love all of them. Again, that's part of it, right? We get to have the chance to have this relationship with such incredible people. Yeah. What a gift. What a gift. And you've given so many gifts to them. They were, they were so appreciative. Thank you so much. To our listeners, you can receive reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to the Student Affairs Now newsletter or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Thanks again to our sponsor today, Stylus Publishing. Please subscribe to the podcast, invite others to subscribe, share on social, or leave a five-star review. It really helps us reach more folks and make this free to folks like you. Again, my name is Keith Edwards. Thanks again to our fabulous guests and all your wisdom they've shared with us today. And to everyone who's watching and listening, please make it a great week. Thank you so much, Larry. All right. Thank you very much, Keith.